Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus on the financials for a sector update. This says we're heading into the Q2 reporting season and are coming off the annual stress test results of the U.S. banks, which we'll spend some time on as well, reviewing those results. Joining me here for the conversation, glad to welcome back financials analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, Brad Ball. Uh, Brad, thank you for dropping by Top of the Morning. Nice to be with you as always and looking forward to our conversation. Welcome back. Thanks, Dan. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for having me back. So, Brad, I know there's a lot we want to cover within the group, so maybe we can begin with the annual stress test results. We did receive those recently. They were of 23 institutions, and it appears that the group fared pretty well from what we saw in the headlines. So could you remind this as a starting point, Brad, what this process targets, what it examines of the banks, and maybe provide some takeaways from this year's results? Sure. Uh, Yes, as you noted, uh, there were 23 large banks uh, in this year's Fed uh, annual stress test, uh, which is also known as DFAST or the Dodd-Frank Act stress test. Um, All 23 banks uh, were able to demonstrate adequate capital under a stressed scenario, under a severely adverse scenario, um, which simulates a, a global recession. Uh, so all 23 banks, uh, quote unquote, passed uh, this year's stress test. Um, now, just to give you a quick reminder, for the past uh, more than a decade, banks have undergone a capital adequacy test by the Fed on an annual basis, which looks at multiple variables that span the scope of economic activity, asset prices, interest rate uh, risks, and uh, GDP assumptions, uh, including a sharp fork quarter consecutive decline in GDP, uh, a sharp rise in unemployment to 10%, uh, sharp decline in commercial real estate prices of as much as 40%. Again, these stress scenarios placed over the banks over a nine-quarter forward-looking analysis to determine whether or not their capital can withstand that kind of environment. Um, Now, this year's focus on the largest banks uh, did uh, continue to show that the banks are able to uh, make loans and continue to conduct business with their clients, uh, even when their capital is under a stress environment. Um, and we've seen real-world evidence, by the way, uh, relative to the financial strength of these institutions, uh, just having gone through a pandemic a couple of years ago, and more recently, uh, immediately following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and two other large uh, mid-sized regional banks, we saw that the banking institutions uh, that were uh, basically subject to this year's stress test, as well as others, were able to sh- show sufficient liquidity and capital to withstand these challenging market conditions and continue to conduct business with their clients So I would say the main takeaway from these results, which is consistent with what we've seen in real-world case studies, is that the largest banks are relatively safe havens for depositors and that the banking system overall remains safe and sound. Now, Brad, as a follow-up, any implications to share buybacks and dividends based on the results we saw? Yes. So the banks use this as uh, this annual stress test as a gauge to uh, how they should manage capital going forward. Uh, we did see, uh, after a 48-hour embargo required by the Fed, we did see several large institutions 
announce uh, their basically capital return plans for the next uh, 12 um, to 24 months. And generally speaking, all of the large uh, big six banks, the, the so-called big six, which include Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo, all of them announced that they increased their dividends on the heels of this year's Fed stress test. But they all remained, I would say, relatively vague uh, regarding their buybacks. Um, we also saw this from some of the bigger regional banks, uh, again, uh, boosting dividends uh, to some extent. But uh, in terms of capital return in the, in the form of share repurchases, they're all showing a clear preference for capital accumulation uh, over share repurchases. In other words, we're stockpiling capital uh, as we move forward. Uh, relative to what we would have done over the last couple of years, which is much more aggressive share repurchases. I think there's two reasons why we're, we're seeing this. First, I think the macro outlook remains uncertain. Uh, you know, banks are reticent to aggressively deplete capital uh, through share repurchases ahead of a potentially rising uh, credit cost environment. Um, and second, the regulatory environment looks to be tightening on capital We've seen recent uh, comments, uh, actually just uh, the other day, from the Fed's vice chairman of bank supervision, Michael Barr, suggesting that higher capital standards may be required across the banking universe. Um, so this implies that going forward, we could see uh, higher compliance costs and higher capital costs across the banking industry. And for that reason, I think the upshot of all of this is that capital return through share repurchases is likely to be less of a tailwind in terms of improving uh, earnings per share outlook or profitability outlook uh, going forward than it has been in the recent past. It's it potentially dampening, uh, I think, the outlook for any positive re-rating of the group. If you take share repurchases out of the equation, you uh, lose that added boost that we've been enjoying for the last couple of years. Well, Brad, thank you for the recap of the results. Definitely a notable point of interest and consideration of the development surrounding the banks earlier this year. So helpful commentary there. I want to pivot a bit to the Fed talk about monetary policy. It does appear that based on recent statements, remarks made by officials, even Chairman Powell himself, that we're in store for another rate hike of a quarter of a point coming up at the July policy meeting. That's just a couple of weeks from now. What would you say, Brad, are the implications for higher for longer rates to the group? Yes, I, I'd say that we are in the later phases of the Fed tightening cycle here. Um, it does look like we'll likely get at least one more rate increase. And in my view, I think we'll probably see rates remain higher for longer as the Fed continues to, to battle uh, what remains a persistent inflation challenge. Um, unfortunately, uh, for the financials, this is uh, somewhat of a challenge going forward because higher rates tend to drive higher funding costs, which in turn can negatively impact net interest income growth. Um, basically, what we're seeing is uh, in, in real time, the deposit pricing environment is catching up to very rapidly rising market rates. Um, competition has intensified. There's been a mix shift in deposits out of non-interest bearing into interest bearing deposits. And this has a negative impact on uh, net interest margins uh, across the financials. And if you combine that with, uh, you know, tightening uh, in, in underwriting, uh, which we are continuing to see as, as banks are concerned 
uh, bank managements are concerned about the outlook for the economy, you get slower loan growth, you get tightening net interest margins. That has a tendency to dampen the outlook for net interest income growth. Importantly, net interest income can be as much as 70% of revenues for uh, banks, uh, somewhat smaller for other non-bank financial institutions, but still a significant component of the outlook driving uh, growth. So basically higher rates uh, and higher rates for longer have become a challenge to the outlook for top-line revenue growth for the industry. Thank you for that, Brad. So I do want to spend a few moments on the Q2 reporting season as we're speaking here on Thursday, July 13th, on the eve of reporting for some of the large-cap banks in your coverage. So we'll start to see some results starting tomorrow and into next week. What are your overall expectations for the group this Q2 reporting season? Yeah, I expect the results for the banks to... Uh, to probably be similar to what we saw in the first quarter, uh, which is, you know, probably fine, mostly, uh, in line, maybe to some modest misses. Uh, as you noted, uh, we're getting results, uh, kicking off tomorrow with a, with a flurry of large banks. I think the, uh, again, on the heels of the first quarter, we saw guidance softening somewhat. And I think we could see that continue this quarter. Uh, in particular, I think that uh, the item I just mentioned, and that is the outlook for net interest income, could be somewhat more challenged. Uh, I mentioned deposit balances uh, are coming under some pricing pressure. We're also seeing some flow pressure. Deposit balances appear relatively flat in the quarter, um, but this mix shift out of non-interest bearing into interest bearing is a challenge in terms of deposit costs. Um, and, it, and we are, as I said, seeing a deceleration in loan growth which has a tendency to negatively impact net interest income overall. Also, non-interest income, so fees uh, like in investment banking and trading, they're expected to be down in the quarter. Uh, mortgage banking has been weak uh, for some time now, and it's probably troughing, but, but still relatively weak here in the second quarter. So not a lot of optimism coming into uh, results tomorrow for top-line revenues, that is, net interest income or fee income. Uh, another big area of focus uh, on the heels of the bank failures was the losses in bank investment portfolios. And you could see uh, somewhat worse results in terms of the unrealized losses in the bank portfolios because of the uh, higher rates that we saw over the course of the second quarter. Uh, that tends to higher rates tend to put a downward impact on the value of securities in your investment portfolio. That could be a topic is that of focus, um, and, and in particular the impact that that could have on capital adequacy. Um, also, credit quality uh, it's likely to still be benign, like it was in the first quarter. But I do think the default trends, the delinquency trends, are suggesting a normalization. That is rising loss rates are coming um, maybe at the end of this year, more into next year. Um, credit has been surprisingly resilient, but you could see some deterioration. And one area of particular focus is commercial real estate, in particular office exposure, where regional banks tend to have a somewhat bigger uh, balance sheet exposure to uh, office and commercial real estate overall. Just finally, wrapping it up, I do think expenses should be well-contained, in particular expenses linked to revenues, uh, so things like bonus accruals for investment bankers and traders, that should come down to some extent. Um, but the banks don't have a lot of levers to pull on on the expense side because they need to continue to invest in technology in order to keep pace with all the changes 
uh, in the financial markets more broadly. Net-net, I would just say that no major blow-ups uh, are expected, uh, but at, that, at the same time, it's hard to imagine that there's any big upside catalysts uh, coming out of results that are beginning tomorrow. Well, thank you, Brad, for sharing your expectations and highlighting what you'll be keeping an eye on as you go through results. Before we close out, overall, you do maintain currently a least preferred view on the broader sector. Can you spend a few moments sharing with us the key pillars behind your current thesis? And in terms of positioning, how should investors be thinking about that specific to the U.S. financials? Sure. Yeah. So the key uh, pillars to our cautious uh, view on U.S. financials are, are really threefold, right? First, uh, you know, as I mentioned, higher interest rates are pressuring net interest income growth. Uh, you know, for regional banks, that could be as much as 70% of revenue. So we could see a slowing in the outlook for a, you know, very significant chunk of overall revenues. Um, meanwhile, uh, I do think that the higher cost of funds will continue to dampen the willingness to lend, and therefore you could see some pressure on loan growth. Uh, loan growth has been robust up through uh, the first quarter of this year, but here into the second quarter, it's beginning to show some signs of slowing. Um, the second pillar uh, you know, is credit deterioration. I, I mentioned this earlier as well. There is a growing headwind uh, as banks add to their loan loss reserves by taking higher provision expense, uh, that's a headwind to the outlook for earnings and earnings growth. Um, and they're doing this really to guard against the potential for future losses in both their consumer and commercial books. I mentioned that commercial real estate, a point of risk, a point of concern. It, feel, it feels to me like it's well ring-fenced. That is, the commercial real estate exposure is known and well identified by the banking sector, but it doesn't remove the overhanging concern that we could see some defaults there. And then finally, the third pillar of caution I also mentioned is around the outlook for uh, regulatory compliance and capital costs, uh, likely uh, added uh, burden, let's say, to the outlook for EPS growth and profitability for the sector. So these risks are basically keeping me on the sidelines, uh, keeping me with a somewhat negative bias. Um, now, the potential magnitude of these uh, impacts uh, is, is not known, of course. Uh, it depends a lot on the macro environment. Um, but it does hang, I think, over the sector as a, as a, as a gray cloud. And it's one that will dampen the outlook for, uh, re-rating valuations, uh, going forward. So we do not expect to see valuations improve significantly with these uncertainties still in front of us. So having said all of that, I just I want to say I remain selective among financials. I'm focused on the larger proven executors among the universal banks. Um, I like the payment networks. I like the less credit exposed exchanges, uh, basically companies that uh, are either fully discounting those risks that I just mentioned or companies that have a business model and a strategy that avoids uh, these major challenges. Um, as I say, there doesn't appear to be any clear positive catalysts on the horizon. So my tendency is to uh, focus on quality in this type of environment 
with a 12-month investment horizon. Well, Brad, thank you very much for joining us here on Top of the Morning. Very productive session as always. We covered a lot of ground and helpful to hear your thinking about the group, especially when it comes to positioning and expectations as we're heading into the Q2 reporting season. So thank you again for your time today, Brad, and looking forward to checking back in as we make our way through the second half. Thank you, Dan. Again, today we have been joined by Brad Ball, financials analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office from UBS Studios. I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.